Hi, I'm Reverend Carol Saunders, host of The Spiritual Forum. I'm here with a lot of interesting people who are consciously walking the spiritual path, experiencing and expressing the divine in unique ways and through unique lenses. Everyone here has wisdom to share and an interesting story to tell, all to inspire you on your spiritual path. Welcome to The Forum. Welcome to the Spiritual Forum, everyone. I'm so glad you're here. I've got such an interesting guest. Actually, I've got the best job in the world. I talk to interesting people every single week. It's really a great, it's a great pleasure. It's a great privilege. And let me see what I should I remind you of. I want to make sure that if you're interested, give me feedback on this podcast that you go to the website, thespiritualforum.org, or sign up for the newsletter, and you'll get a link to a survey. So we'd love to get your feedback, love to hear what people think. Also appreciate your sharing this podcast. It's 100% donation-based, so anybody who wants to throw a dollar or two or 10 or 100 or whatever you got, whatever whatever is always welcome. So thank you for all who have given in the past and those in the future as well. So let me introduce my guest today. Dr. David Weil is the former director of the Center for Advanced Lung Disease and Lung and Heart Transplant Program at Stanford University Medical Center. He's served in a variety of international and national roles, both in the private and public sectors, and authored numerous medical articles, books, book chapters, and editorials. He's twice testified before the United States Senate, appeared before various state legislatures, and lectured extensively nationally and internationally at major medical conferences and academic medical centers. Currently, Dr. Weil serves as the principal of the Weil Consulting Group, which focuses on improving the delivery of pulmonary ICU and transplant care. Today, we're going to be talking about his memoir, which is called Exhale, Hope, Healing, and a Life in Transplant, which was published in May 2021. Welcome, Dr. Weil. Thank you. So nice to be here. Nice to have you here, too. You can call me Carol. I just want to let you know you can call me Carol. Thank you. Do you want me to call you Dr. Weil or David or? No, David, please. All right. my, my last name is hard enough as it is. We're going we're gonna to drop all the formalities and just go, just go to the informal. So I kind of want to start off by hearing your, your journey, but uh, your whole book is your journey. So we're, we're not going to read your whole book today, but I'm interested in kind of how you got to where you are today, what you've learned along the way about yourself. I read your book, and I know that as we go through your book, you, uh, from my standpoint, you kind of get closer to your authentic self, and I think that's a spiritual nature. But I'm also interested in any spiritual realizations you may have had, what you learned about yourself. You've had such a unique life journey, and it seems like it's such a privilege to be in your position to help so many people. So I just kind of want to give you the floor for you know five, 10 minutes or so if you wanted to share whatever it is that you want us to know about you and how you got to where you are today. And then we'll go from there. Sure. I, I grew up in New Orleans, Louisiana, and I am the son of a doctor who immigrated from Berlin, Germany, right before the Holocaust and was Jewish. He turned his back on his own faith that for, for reasons that I think are you know fairly obvious, a lot of Holocaust survivors did. My mother, Southern Baptist from Selma, Alabama, and so got a firsthand look at the civil rights issues around there. She also turned her back on her religion. So I was really raised without any formal religion in my life. And my religion, as it were, was ambition and achievement and trying to be the best I was 
I could be at my own craft, which was transplantation. And so I poured everything I had in, into that. And as I went along, I developed some, I think, poor emotional habits, poor, poor sp spiritual habits, in that I thought, well, if I do the job the best I can, I, David, am going to be saving people's lives. And I think it took a long time for me to realize that I wasn't the one saving their life. I was just part of that. You know, I was a small part of that. I, I was the hands, you know, of a greater being. And so I found that as I went through this journey and I became more and more driven, seeking perfection, that I needed to have my own metamorphosis or transformation into a more spiritual being. And for me, that started around the time that Katrina, Hurricane Katrina, hit my hometown in 2005. And even though I wasn't living in New Orleans at the time, it profoundly affected me. So for the first time in my life, I started reading the Bible. And without any formal training in it, I read it cover to cover in the first year, and then did it again in the second year, and then did it again in the third year. I, t I tend to go all in on stuff, and so that was no different. And it really wasn't until I had daughters of my own, and I, I'm married to a devout Catholic who doesn't have any ambiguity about her faith. And I decided that while they were going to church every Sunday, and I was going to the hospital every Sunday, I was missing an important part of our family experience. I felt disconnected from them. And so I decided about 10 years ago to go through formal religious training in the Catholic faith and become Catholic about 10 years ago. A lot of people comment to me that I converted to Catholicism, but I, I don't think so because I really wasn't any formal religion before that. So I really became Catholic about 10 years ago, and it's been really important to me. I, As part of this awakening, if you will, I stepped out of the front lines of the hospital several years ago because I, I, I don't think that it was a job that was rational for me anymore. I couldn't look at it in a rational way. And I spent most of the time kind of perseverating and thinking about the patients we lost rather than the ones that we helped. And I think that because of that, I stepped away and I'm doing something entirely different now. I, I wrote a book, as you mentioned. I also help coach transplant programs and people that are going through the same kind of experience that I went through and hope that they can avoid some of the problems that I avoided toward the end of my career. I had a, I had a great career and I felt privileged to have it. I helped a lot of people and I think I was able to impact folks' life. But at the end, I, I don't think I was taking care of myself very well at all. And I, I think I've lear I learned that lesson pretty late in life. Oh, I don't think so. You're still very young. <laughs> Not as young as I was. I'm pushing 60 now. <laughs> there, there are a lot of people who haven't even gotten close to learning all of this. I, I, I think what I'd like to do is, I want to touch on a few of those points that you made, but I think I'd like to kind of back up a little bit to give our listeners an idea about the kind of work you were doing, the kind of, the, the way you, see, to me, you seem to be dancing on the edge of life and death. 
constantly. And then you had this, I, I love the way you describe this kind of addiction to control that, you know, that, 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 you, that you get to this point where you think you can control the destiny of people. And I, I'm not saying that in any critical way. I, I identify with that so much. <laughs> I identify with so much, not, not in a, you know, like an, like the typical, you know, you've got your hand, a hammer to someone's head, not like that, but just the idea, the idea that we actually can control the outcome of people. It's, it's this addictive thing that the ego does. Just this idea that, oh, I, if I just did this, I could save them from that. Or if I just said that, they could change their mind. And all of that is just so false. But I'm wondering if you could just share a little bit about what that job was for you yeah. so that people can get where you are now. Yeah, I led a big team of people most of my career at Stanford doing this kind of work where I was ahead of about 55 or 60 people. And our team, our responsibility was to take care of a very sick group of patients with lung disease, many of whom required a lung transplant. And so for about 20 years during my career, I was in charge of picking candidates, people that would go on the waiting list for an organ transplant. I picked out the donors, the organ donors that I thought would be a good match for those people, and then took care of them with my team, of course, post-operatively. And we had a very good team, and I want to make sure that everyone understands that it, it certainly wasn't just me doing this kind of work. But the responsibility ultimately fell to me to make sure that those folks got the best care that they could. And so for about 20 years, I walked around with a list of names in my pocket that needed a transplant. And it felt like a bowling ball in my pocket most of the time. It's, it's quite a bit of responsibility and it never really left me. You know, if I took a shower, it was on the bathroom sink. If I went out to ride my bike, it was in my back pocket. When I went out to dinner, it was with me. And I I think my wife can attest to the fact that I walked out on more than one date nights during the course of my career because an organ became available just then. So I knew in real time that it was quite a bit of responsibility, but I think, I think there's a cumulative effect to it. In other words, I think at the beginning when I was 30 years old doing this kind of work, it felt cool and fun. And I, I didn't think about it a lot. But as my career went on, I had kids of my own. My father then required a liver transplant. It started to get closer and closer to home. And that responsibility felt overwhelming by the time I left the hospital. And it was a major reason that I did leave the hospital. Yeah. And you also describe what I thought was so interesting, because to me, it seems like it's such high pressure work. And it's so easy to have your ego to get, you know, kind of caught up in it. But it seemed to me like you never really lost track of your humanity because you described these moments where you would break down in tears, which I think that really surprised me. That really surprised me because being so close to, to people living or dying, I, I would just guess that a doctor's response would be to pull away emotionally so that you protect yourself from all of the feelings. But it didn't seem like that's what you did. No, and some do that. Some that I worked with actually build a wall and it stays up and they're pretty, they're pretty good at protecting themselves. And, uh, and in many ways, I, I became jealous of them, frankly. Um, it, it's not the way that I was able to do it. If I went back into the hospital today, 
I'm afraid to say I would probably do it the same way I did it before, just because to me, it was not a scientific or medical endeavor. It was, it was a people, you know, business. We, we became very close to the people that we transplanted and their families. And my issue was the overwhelming obligation that I felt to them to give them the best transplant that I could give them. And I, and I took that very personally. And I think most would say probably too personally. And it was, while I felt their gratitude and I appreciated their gratitude, in many ways I was addicted to their gratitude, I also felt like when we couldn't save their life, that it was a personal failure on, on, my, on my part. And that's exactly the way that I looked at it. Now, I'm not advocating that. And I talk to young doctors a lot now and try to get them not to think that way because I don't think it leads to a long and healthy, happy career necessarily. But it was the way that I did it. And my mm -hmm. patients, I think, felt that. But at the same time, I also know that it took a toll on me. Yeah. I'm wondering with where you are now, do you see that, and, and maybe this doesn't go along with your Catholic beliefs, but do you have any sense that people's souls make their own decisions about when to enter the world and when to leave the world and how and all of that? Do you have any sense that that's actually what's going on versus that we can actually control a person's time of death? You know, as I went on in, in, in my career, I started out as a person that I would characterize as not particularly spiritual. Mm -hmm. But the more I saw about this field in particular, the more I became a believer that there was a higher being, that there was something else going on that was much bigger than us. And I think that I saw too much in the hospital to possibly think otherwise. You know, in other words, patients live who shouldn't have lived. Patient died, patients died who shouldn't have died. And I saw, you know, miraculous things happen quite frequently. And so by the time I progressed toward the end of my career, it was almost impossible not to believe in a, in a higher being. Mm -hmm. And so I thought about it a lot. But the connection that I, that I didn't think I made until very late, more recently, really, was the connection that I can feel like I'm a spiritual person. But I, that means that I have to understand that I, David, am not personally responsible for somebody's outcome, whether they live or die. There's somebody else, something else. Mm -hmm. And I think that, that that connection was a little bit more difficult for me. And I'm sure it is for a lot of people. I'm not the only control enthusiast out there. And I, I'm sure a lot of people feel like they really can control every aspect of their life when we know None of us can. Yeah, none of us can. I do like the term control enthusiast. The, I'm going to use that one. It's, it's a positive <laughs> spin, I think. Yeah, I'm just very enthusiastic about control. Right. I'm enthusiastic about outcomes. That, that's right. That's right. <laughs> well, you mentioned that you, for one year, you read the Bible cover to cover, and another year, you read it a second time. I have to say, I know very few people who've read the Bible cover to cover, and there's a lot that really doesn't make sense in the Bible when you read it cover to cover. I'm really curious about... First of all, I guess you, you decide to do that because you said you go all in on everything. So you're either going to do it all in or you're not. 
But the, the decision to read it cover to cover is an interesting one. I'm interested in that. Yeah. And also, what did what did you discover? Because there's yeah. some crazy stuff in the Bible. There, there is. I, I think I, I think the thing, and it, this is embarrassing to admit, but I'm going to anyway. I think that what attracted me most is that there was a system in place for you to read the Bible cover to cover in a year. I'm very much interested <laughs> in, okay, this is what you have to do on January 1st. This is what you have to read on January 2nd. And that that appeals to me. And Got it. once I found the daily, you know, one-year Bible reader, I, I really could say, this is great. This is what, exactly what I'm going to do, Old Testament and New Testament. And I think what was interesting about it is that I was starting out with zero knowledge of religion. I mean, my background, you know, was essentially devoid of any formal religion. And everything was new to me. And what, what interests me the most is, and I, I, this should not have come as a surprise, and I don't think it will likely come to, as a surprise to you or your listeners, is that the struggles that you read about in the Bible are exactly the same ones that you have right now. <laughs> and I, I, that surprised me for some reason, you know, because I was, you know, thinking that it was just going to be a bunch of old stories that had no relevance to current life. But I, I find nothing further from the truth. So a lot of it appealed in that way. Now, I think the New Testament was definitely easier going for me, a little more relatable. The Old Testament was hard to relate to in certain times, you know, with people living for hundreds of years and things of that nature. So I, I, I enjoyed it. I, 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 don't, I don't read the Bible as much as, as I did back then, but, but I refer to it. You know, in other words, I don't read it cover to cover anymore, but I refer to certain passages that are of interest to me. So. Yeah, I think your observation is interesting. That it, it is an ancient story that we're living again. <laughs> it's yeah. it's really our story. I mean, I there's lots of different ways to look at the Bible. I, I I tend to look at it more symbolically, more metaphysically. Some people look at it literally. It it doesn't really matter what what works for you, but it is definitely a drama, <laughs> and it is definitely our drama. And you can find yourself in all of those stories. It's it's not just a story of you know people a long time ago. What they're struggling with, we're struggling with. We're, we're characters, we're the same kinds of characters in, in, in those stories. So, you know, for example, one of my favorite stories is the Exodus story, when Moses leaves, takes the people out of Egypt, and eventually they get to the promised land. And the way I've always told that back when I was doing church is, it's really symbolic of whatever it takes to end some sort of form of slavery, whether it's slavery to your ego, slavery to your addiction to control, slavery to a past job, whatever it is. And then you you come into this, this place called the wilderness, which is like the void, which is the in-between stage. And, you know, you got to kind of figure out who you are before you go on to the promised land. So that's not how it's told in Exodus, but that story is a very relatable story. And it's your story, and it's my story, you know? There's a lot that we can learn from those stories. So, yeah, your story, it just seems that way to me also, kind of leaving this role, this high-pressure job in, in the transplant business at Stanford and eventually starting your own consulting business. And in between, there's just a whole lot of figuring out of who you are there is to do. And it's just what we all go through time after time. Yeah, I think, you know, as I've, as I've left the front lines of medicine and talked about my experience, 
And I've talked to groups that have nothing to do with medicine, uh, groups of stockbrokers and airline pilots and people that are under similar pressures. And, and, I, and, I, and there's others out there. There's a lot of people under similar pressures. And I think it's interesting that there's commonality in, in all of those folks. And especially now, I think, post-COVID, you, you hear and talk to a lot of people that are looking for the next chapter in their life. They've had some realizations, I think, while we were all inside and away from each other. And I get a lot of messages from folks that have read my book about how do you, how do you develop the next chapter, the part two of being you? And I, I think it does require some kind of journey. You know, I don't think you'd wake up one day and you just flip the page and it's the next chapter. I think it's not quite that linear. And I, it interests me in hearing people's story about, you know, what's next for, the, for them. Because I think more now more than ever, I think people are looking for that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think COVID shook up a lot of people psychologically, spiritually, awakened a lot of people to a lot of, a lot of things. To me, it felt like the cards, were, the cards of my life were kind of thrown up in the air, and some of them are still up in the air, and some of them are, have kind of fallen, and you know, where are they all going to fall? I think a lot of people are in that mode of what is next, what is next? It, and, and, and the story, back to the Exodus story, that time in the wilderness, it was, it was like, quote, 40 years, but what it really means is as long as it takes, as long as it takes for you to create the identity the, the true sense of self before you can really go on to your next venture. Otherwise, you'll find yourself back in Egypt. You'll find yourself back to where you came from. Did that ever, did you ever felt, feel called back to getting back into that kind of rat race? All, all the time. I mean, and I, and I still do in an effort of full disclosure. <laughs> yeah. I was programmed to do this kind of work. And, you know, especially soon after I, le I left Stanford, a lot of folks called up and asked if I could come to their hospital and try to fix their transplant program and do the same kind of work. And I entertained a lot of them, less and less so now. Yeah. And I think the longer I've been out of the front lines, the less phone calls I get, which is probably good. So I'm not tempted to go back. But you know, it was such an important experience for me in that kind of work that in some form or fashion, I think about it every day, and I probably will for the rest of my life, that that is to upset me a little bit because I was kind of wondering if I was going to ever stop thinking about it. And now I actually think it's fine. I, you know, I'm going to think about it. And, I, you know, I don't think about it in a negative way anymore. I think about it in a positive way. Yeah. So I think that that's good. Yeah, that your life is unfolding really in the right and perfect way. And what you're doing now is, is helping people in, in kind of a, uh, I think, from what I can understand, it's really from a different level. You know, you're helping the transplant business, the, that work, yeah. but from kind of a more macro level. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, you know, obviously I was working within a singular program at Stanford, doing the best I could for that patient group and that program. But what I'm able to do now is help a wider swath of programs that are having all kinds of problems. A lot of younger people trying to do the kind of work and need someone to talk to that's been there. 
And I enjoy it. You know, I think it's more coach than quarterback at this stage of the game. Yeah. And I also think there's a lot of innovation going on in our field driven by private companies mostly. And I think it's very meaningful to me to be able to interact with them and tell them, you know, look, here, here's what I think. Here's how we can help the most patients. And while private companies obviously have the bottom line is, you know, a primary thing that they need to think about, you know, I, I feel like I can remind them that, you know, we're talking about real people out there that, that need the help. And, you know, if I keep coming back to that, I think I'm being true to, to my mission. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. How do you feel about going back and telling these stories? How did you feel when you were writing the book? Because you wrote the book in a very, very authentic, I mean, cut to the chase, <laughs> here, I, here I am kind of way. There seemed to be no sugarcoating at all. It was just like authentic you. This is what you're feeling. This is what you're saying. This is how you talk. And, and you had this interesting recollection of so many of your patients and also some of your coworkers and whatnot. And I'm just wondering how it felt writing the book and looking at, at that part of your life and actually putting it down on paper. And what, what would through your mind and heart when you did it? Yeah, it's a good question. I, I wrote the first draft of the entire book in about three months. It came out really fast. And of course, I had to then spend about 18 more months editing it and got help doing that from a very good editor. I think that the important thing to me, and I was told this early on, there's a writer at Stanford who's also a doctor that is very well known named Abraham Verghese who has written some great books and actually just had a book come out yesterday that I just started. And he told me that if you're going to write memoir and you're not going to be fully transparent and fully honest, don't bother. Because I think it wasn't just a cathartic experience, although that was part of it. I think also I wanted to make sure that, look, here's a job that most people aren't going to do and they probably don't really know much about it. And I've had my patients read it and they were like, they had no idea, you know, what I was thinking or what goes into it. And so I wanted to have the reader be able to walk in the shoes of somebody that had this job and to be able to feel at least what I felt doing it. Now, I think the, the only way to be able to do that is to show the very highs and the very lows. So I talk about some patients that, you know, had me floating on air. And then I had other, and I talk about other patients that had me in the bathroom in the hospital crying, you know, and so I wanted to show both. And I think it's interesting, the people in the transplant business who do the same kind of work I did, have reacted to it in a way that suggests that they're experiencing a lot of the same things, but they're not in a position to go put that down on paper and have it out there, but kind of glad that I did. Mm -hmm. I think from the patient standpoint, what I've heard most is, hey, we didn't know you guys were human. <laughs> you know? <laughs> uh, yeah. You know, we, we didn't know that you were hurting, you know, the way that you had hurt when, you know, one of us didn't do well. And, you know, that's, that's pretty sobering because I think doctors, by and large, not all of them, but by and large, really want their patients to do well and really care about them. I think our healthcare industry obviously has a lot of problems, 
And I think distance has been created between the patient and the provider, which is really unfortunate. But I think by and large, you know, doctors care about what happens, you know, to the people that are in their in their charge. And I wanted to be able to show that on the page if I could. Yeah, I think you accomplished that really, really well. I I I agree with you on I in terms of people's perception of doctors. I mean, I I know I know that I I have issues with doctors. I, I've seen a huge change from you know my childhood doctor, Doctor Prelane. I still know his name. You know. It was like face to face and he came to our house, you know, I'm not saying he always came to our house, but when we were little kids, if we were sick, he came to our house. And that's how I remember. And from that time of my life up to now, it just feels so much more corporate and corporate anything just feels less human. And so I'm really glad to hear what you have to say about doctors really feeling and really taking an interest in their patients. I'm not saying that I don't think they do, but I do think the whole corporate structure has shifted that a great deal. No doubt. And, and it concerns me. And it's actually part of what I'm working on right now. I, I think there's been a lot of the soul of medicine. Mm-hmm. It, you know, it's human. There's several factors for why that happened. But if you take, you know, the time that I watched my father and his friends practicing medicine, you know, in the 70s and 80s when I was growing up, to the time I started to now, it's night and day. Mm-hmm. It's night and day. And it's not, the temptation is just to say, well, it was COVID. It, it's gone on well before COVID. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you're, what you're seeing is, and there's been a lot of discussion of physician burnout. What you're seeing is less about the individual burning out, but just utter frustration with how medicine has to be practiced now. And what I'm interested in, especially now, is figuring out what's going to be the impetus to change that, because that impetus is not going to come from the healthcare industry. Mm-hmm. They really, they're not particularly motivated to change it. It's not going to come from government. We've seen attempts to do that that have largely been unsuccessful. I think it's going to come from the grassroots. I think ultimately. Patients are going to have to decide, and, and the healthcare providers are going to have to decide that they've had enough. And I think until that happens, we're going to see insurance companies kind of running the show, deciding what kind of care you get, whether or not you get a CT scan that's been ordered by your doctor, whether or not you know you can get this test, that one. Until we actually have a wide-scale revolt against that, I, I think we're going to have more of the same. I'm sorry to say. Yeah, and I do think I do think that's what's up for humanity right now is this grassroots <laughs> declaring what it is that we want. It's the same thing with large corporation versus small business. You know, you go into the mom and pop store and you know them and they know you and you have this relationship and you talk about the family and this and that and and there's that and then it's a very different when you go into Target or Home Depot or one of the big box stores or any kind of corporation and and they also have a lot to offer us but i think our humanity and i think covid did help us see this yearns for that connection that that you know 
this is who I am and this is who you are and, and we are a community together. And, and it just seems that there's so much of an opportunity to do that with healthcare as well so that we become more bonded as human beings working with each other and not just kind of, you know, like I, I get a, a medical procedure done. I have no idea what it's going to cost. I don't know any part of that. <laughs> All I know is I'm told to go here to there and then I get this bill and I go, wait a minute. But every every other thing is kind of in life, you kind of have a little negotiation or a talk. There's so much room to make medicine, healthcare, much more human, much more heart-centered, much more soulful, spiritual even. No, no, no doubt. And I, and I, I, I do think that the people are going to have to control that. And it's the same, you know, we're getting far afield here, but I mean, it's the same with our <laughs> political system. No one likes the choices that are presented to them. Right. It's like, well, you know, we are in charge. It doesn't seem like we are, but we are. And I think the same is true with healthcare. I think, you know, we're going to have to, you know, decide that we're just not going to stand for it anymore. And I think doctors are going to have to decide that as well. I think that, there's going to have to be better organization of physicians and, you know, push back on the things that they don't like. And, you know, that's what it's going to take. Because I think the notion that someone on a white horse is going to come riding in. They're not. Uh, not really. <laughs> yeah. I don't think so. There's, don't there's think so. nobody out there. Up. No one out there is going to save you know, us. I think, I think it's going the other direction. I mean, I just think, you know, in, in, the, in my time in medicine, the trend has not been positive, you know. Yeah. And I think that, I think that, we, as we awaken to this, nobody out there that's going to change things for us, then who's going to change it? Well, it's, it's, then it really does become the inner journey. It really is an inner journey. We really each need to go inside and find that, you know, authentic voice and say, what do I want my life to look like? Not like this life's been painted for me. Now I need to just kind of play in that arena. We can paint our own lives, but we're so conditioned to just kind of do what's presented to us. And okay, well, that's just the way it is. Okay, I don't, I don't know what else to do. Maybe someone will change it someday. Maybe the next president, maybe the next senator. No, it's got to be us. And I think you're spot on with that. Yeah, I think I think that that's right. I, you know, I, I I think it's the time for the passivity is is over. <laughs> the time for the passivity is over. Yeah, it really is. I I wanted to share a few things from your book, and I I kind of highlighted a few areas, but there's this one page that I kind of dog-eared a bit, and you were pondering a patient named Amanda's death. And you said, back then, I considered Amanda's death a personal and institutional failure. It's only today, 25 years into my transplant career, that I see the arrogance of that mindset. Just as I didn't save hundreds of lives with my extraordinary talent, I didn't kill all the patients who died either. I didn't have the wisdom to see that then. I was waging a personal war against death, and I thought that I should be able to win each and every battle. I wanted to bring that up because I know we've already kind of talked about this idea that we have to control, but I just love what you wrote here because I think we do wage personal wars. I don't think we're using our strength and power to do what you're talking about, kind of rising up and creating a better world for ourselves, but 
But what you're talking about here is that we can't win each and every battle and, and we don't have that much control. You said, I found that the same arrogance that belief in my ability to control outcomes had an upside. It served to instill confidence in the patients who put their lives in my hands. I'm probably backtracking a little bit, but I really liked what you wrote there. Yeah, I, you know, I, I think it speaks a lot to it, you know, to what we've talked about. It, it is arrogant, you know, to think that. And I know why I thought it. And I know why I talk to patients, you know, in a very confident manner. I, I would never let them see doubt or I'm not sure or you may or may not do well. I, 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 didn't, say, I didn't talk to patients like that. It was more, you know, roll up the chair right next to them tap them on the leg, tell them we got this. I would use, you know, phrases like piece of cake, walk in the park, you know, things like that. And patients tell, tell me it made them feel better. I mean, it did. Was it a bit of shading of the risk that they were about to take? Absolutely. And I don't feel great about that. But at the same time, I felt like in that moment, my job was to try to dispel any fear that they might they might have and i and i i think that that was what i was trying to do looking back on it i'm not always thrilled with the way i did it but at the same time i know that that's what i was trying to do yeah i mean i think that the last thing you want to do is to put anybody in a state of fear or anxiety you know, you want to, you want to, I, I know it's hard to necessarily, not necessarily tell the hundred percent truth, but what came to my mind when you were talking, and this may be even more morbid, but I don't know if you remember the, the Titanic movie, but do you remember in, in the lower levels, whatever they call that area? And this one woman was reading to her child. I mean, the water was coming in, they were all going to drown. And she was, it made me cry so much. It, she was reading to her child. She wasn't saying, oh, we're all going to die. We're all going to die. She was creating a story for her baby. And I think that was really noble. And I think that's more of what you were doing. Yeah, that was a powerful scene. I do remember that. And, and I, you know, I, I think that, especially in the line of work I was in, I learned a lot about people's fear. And fear is a, an incredible emotion, right? You know, we're not out in the jungle anymore being chased by lions and tigers, but we have fears in modern society that are important that I think actually raised our anxiety level to all-time highs. And I, and I think there's study after study that shows that. And I think that one of, the, one of humans' biggest obstacles right now, biggest challenges is to try to overcome our fears. And I have them, and you may have them, and some of your listeners may have them. And I think that's the biggest issue that we have right now. There's so many reasons to be fearful. All you have to do is turn on the news, you know. Don't do that. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> Don't do that. I, I, I think reading the newspaper every morning is turned into a stressful experience. It used to be my favorite part of the day. You know, but with school shootings, the political divide, racial tensions, social media, you name it, COVID, <laughs> the next pandemic, I, I think there's all kinds of reasons to be fearful right now. And I, I think our daily battle is to try to tamp that down as best mm -hmm. we can. And I think the kind of work you're doing is probably going to be the answer, or at least most of the answer is some kind of spiritual connection. It's got to be. 
Yeah, I mean, this whole podcast, I, I used to run a church, but this whole podcast is really to be a, a voice of hope and inspiration and awakening, and because we need some of that in the world. There's a lot of the other stuff going on. But you talk about fear, and I, I was also in anxiety, and I was also thought it was really interesting that when you're assessing a candidate, or when you back when you were in that job, when you're assessing a candidate for transplant, that one of the things that you look at is kind of their psychological makeup. And are they, do they have kind of what it takes to go through this whole process and, and not get too down on the dumps and to, you know, navigate all the ups and downs of the process? I thought that was really interesting. Yeah, it's called the psychosocial evaluation. And, you know, when I started out in my career, it was very informal. I would talk to a patient and I would kind of just figure it out, you know, somehow developing some kind of sixth sense about it about who is going to be resilient enough to go through this big operation, this therapy. And then some folks at Stanford, actually, that I worked with in the psychiatry department developed a more formal way of assessing people's psychosocial character or ability. And I think using both a subjective and objective evaluation is probably the way to go. But it was one of the most important things that we did. You know, we did all kind of tests on folks to figure out what their physical being was. And we knew a lot about that going into the transplant. But I think survival often depended on someone's physiological or rather psychological makeup. And I saw that time and time again. Some people just were tough as nails, you know, and showed courage every single day stayed in the ICU for three months and fought and fought and fought. And then one day walked out of the hospital and they just wouldn't give up and they wouldn't quit. And those are the kind of patients that I remember, you know, very fondly, but also had experience with the other kind of patient as well, who I think just didn't realize, you know, what a battle it would be. And it's a tough battle. And I felt badly for those folks as well because they got overwhelmed by the whole fight. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm sure that, you know, I, I believe that there's a divine spark in each person. And I'm sure that you kind of had a, a front row seat at looking at some of these people and going, wow, you know, I mean, whether or not you had the spiritual sense of life as you do now back then, there has to be some admiration for, you know, beholding this divine or beholding just the miraculous nature of this person, what, what caused them to keep, you know, to keep going when things were so tough. I'm sure that you had to, from time to time, just really have respect and awe for certain people. Oh, definitely. I mean, that part I always, I thought, I think had in me, I just didn't identify it necessarily as a spiritual factor. I identified it more as I would use techniques to motivate patients to fight harder. Some of them were techniques that I'm not, again, looking back, I wish I had tried a different technique, but a lot of them were to try to draw out, and different people need different things, right? You know, some people need an arm around them, you know, and a hug, and I gave out some of those. And then I also gave out some tough love. And it depended on the individual, really. And I tried to draw out of them what I think I needed them to do to get out of the hospital, which is what I wanted for them. Yeah. So interesting. So what do you, 
how do you look at all of your life now? And how do you look at like where you are now and whatever your faith is now, whatever your your sense of yourself as a spiritual being is now, how do you look at that whole journey? Do you see it as kind of ordained or do you see it as just you made certain choices? Do you see that it, you had divine guidance? Do you see it as, I'm just really glad I am where I am now? How do you kind of look at your whole life? You know, I, I think that I kind of look at it as I experienced something profound and I look at my hospital life as that. I experienced something important to me. It was educational to me. It was inspirational to me. And then I, I look at my life now as reflection, you know, a, a lot of it. And I think what I'm privileged to be able to do right now is reflect on the things that I learned and try to take them and do something useful with them. I don't think that I ever had in mind that I would leave the hospital and I would sit on a beach somewhere or, you know, play golf. I, I, I really wanted to take what I learned in the hospital and apply it to the rest of my life. I, I don't think I've reached a spot where I could say, well, I'm emotionally totally satisfied. I'm spiritually in an excellent place. There is no room for improvement. I am fantastic where I am right now. I, I don't feel that way. I feel like I started on this journey several years ago. I think I'm going to be exploring the rest of my life. And I think the writing that I do right now informs that. I think writing to me has become a way for me to figure out what's going on inside my head. And I know it is for a lot of people, but it, it, it has been that for me. So even though some of the words will end up in a book and some won't, I, I think they're both equally important to me. And uh -huh. so I think writing is going to be a big part of how I process things spiritually going forward. Yeah. Yeah. And again, your writing is, I, I'm going to get my husband to read your book because he had really a lot of stress in his in his past life as well. But the fact that you're really no holds barred and you're really, you know, like you said, whoever it was that was helping you with your writing, that you've really got to tell the truth. Not there's there's no lies in this book that I can discern. <laughs> it's it's like very, very much here I am and here it is and no bullshitting anybody. And I think that in itself, honestly, is part of the spiritual journey. Just that that not feeling like, oh, I don't want to tell people that. And maybe there were some things you didn't want to tell people. You know, that's okay. But the yeah. things that you did, go ahead. Yeah, I mean, I, th I think, you know, w what I tried to do was not hurt anybody else with my writing, which I, you know, I, I, I probably walked a line on that a little bit. Uh, but I tried not to, and I didn't want to. That was not a goal. And if I was going to be critical of anybody in my story, it was going to be me. <laughs> and, I, and I had this some actually more than some self-criticism during the course of, of, of the book. But I think that I, I spoke with a high school class yesterday, an English class here in town. And I, I, think it's, I think it takes a certain maturity level, a certain amount of courage to put down on the page what you actually think. Uh, and I don't think, you know, I was talking to 17-year-olds yesterday. I don't think I could have done that at 17. I'm not sure I could have done it at 37 or maybe even 47. But by the time I got into my 50s, I was able to do it. Um, and I think that, that that takes a certain state of mind. And, you know, I, I do think it's worth getting there um, because it helps me understand a whole lot better what's going on with myself. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I interviewed a guy, 
year or two ago, who was a Vietnam vet. And he wrote a memoir that was so revealing. And I had so much admiration for him because I kept thinking, wow, would I have, would I have told that? Or would I have tried to keep that a secret? He, there were no secrets in his book. And, and I don't think there's secrets in your book. And I think that that's part of the really cool thing about you know, growing up, about growing older, about getting wiser, that we are, it's okay for us to say, you know, this is who I am. I'm not proud of this, or I'm not proud of that, but I am proud of this. I'm proud of this. And just here it all is. Here I am. Here yeah. I am a human. I, I think you're absolutely right. And the books that I enjoy reading the most are books like that. Uh, you know, I, I, I think you can tell when an author you know, is telling you the whole truth and nothing but the truth. And I think that you can tell when they don't do that as well. So uh, that's why I'm, I'm attracted to memoir, especially because I do want to hear, you know, the experiences people had in different lines of work in different life settings. And I'm attracted to that. That's mostly what I read. Well, I, I think it, it's something, it's an example for the rest of us. It's an example to say, oh, that's what a human can do. I'm a human. I can also be authentic and share myself rawly. I don't have to pretend. I don't have to hide. Because so much of our life we spend hiding. So much of our life we spend pretending with those walls that we talked about. And to be able to take those walls down and say, you know, here's everything. I think it inspires everybody else to possibly take their armor down as well. I think that's absolutely right. Yeah, I think that's right. So we have just a couple more minutes. I just wanted to give you the opportunity to say whatever you want, whatever your message might be that we might not have shared if you want to convey something to everybody who's listening. Yeah, I, you know, I always speak, you know, directly when I talk about my book to the people that are in similar situations. And, you know, one, one thing that I think, I hope I accomplished at least is that, you know, there are a lot of people out there struggling, you know, there, there's tons. And I, for one, you know, went on this journey of trying to figure out what was going on with my, with me emotionally. That included talking to family, to friends, pastors, anybody that I thought could help me. I think the key is connection. So I see so many people now isolated, and I think loneliness is a huge issue in our society. And at times where I struggle the most is when I was the most isolated from my family, my faith, my friends, my work colleagues. And you, you've got to consider isolation the enemy and that the only way that we can get through all of this is to stay connected with one another. And I think we've got a real problem with that. I think, we, I think middle-aged men especially have a problem with that. I, I think at least what I see, I think women do a better job of it, if I can make that generalization of staying connected to each other. Men tend to close up, watch a game on TV, read a book, not talk about how they feel. But I would really encourage folks out there not to do that, because that's not a path that leads to healing. Mm -hmm. and, and I think that the COVID years did a number on us with connection and even the divisions on how we reacted to it, how we saw it, and their divisions in families and divisions in companies and divisions in workforces and, and, and all the other divisions that are manufactured out there for us to be yapping at each other and biting each other's ankles, that through all of it, 
through all of it, I think sometimes I think we've brought all of this on ourselves so that we can go, no, connection and love is more important. I may have a completely different view politically or any other category than you, but I can connect to you. And that's more important than my view or my, my position or my experience or anything. I, I think that is also what's up for us. We talked about what's up for us is to stand up and create the world we want. I think what else is up for us is to just reach beyond across the aisle, no matter what, and say, that's what matters. It doesn't matter what they're trying to do to separate us. Yeah, I think that's right. That's a powerful message. And I think that that's where we need to be. And I think, you know, it's going to take some work because there's so many forces that are looking to divide us. It's really amazing. And COVID definitely exacerbated all of that. Mm -hmm. Even the science was, you know, looked at through a partisan lens. And that was, that was, I was quite disillusioned by that. But I think, I I think we can do better, you know, and I think we will. I I think we're going to have to. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's the message then. I think the message is, is that to find ways to be connected and to be loved and to follow in your footsteps in terms of just being authentic and putting down all of the, the, the armor and, and sharing who we are authentically. I think there's a lot of hope in the world if we do that. And I think we can only do it individually. We can't make everybody else out there do it. So you can do it. I can do it. And that's about all we can do. <laughs> No, I, I think I think that that's true. But I mean, you know, seeing, given what I saw in the hospital about individual effort and courage and faith and th- things of that nature, I, I know people have that in them. I do. Yes. Yeah, they do. Yes. Well, I'll have a link to your book on the podcast page. I think that I'll hold it up here. I think that the stories that you tell are also just very, very inspiring. And it's a fast read. It's a fast read because it's just, it, it's captivating. And the chapters are short. I always like cha- short chapters. <laughs> yeah, me too. I did that purposely. <laughs> for the, Thank you. <laughs> for the attention challenged among us. <laughs> We're all attention challenged. <laughs> Okay. Thank you, David, so much for being with with me today. I just thought it was a wonderful conversation. It's been a real pleasure, Carol. Thank you. Yeah. And thank you, listeners. It's, It's been a really great, great time. So I now close the Spiritual Forum. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, you can let me know by leaving a positive rating and review on your favorite podcast app or make a tax-deductible donation at thespiritualforum.org. The Spiritual Forum is a podcast, prayer, and retreat ministry affiliated with Unity Worldwide Ministries. Thank you again for being a part of the Spiritual Forum community. And remember, you are an amazing, divine, and powerful being.